You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled, From This Day Forward. Whether you are currently married or want to be married, this series discusses three commitments for starting fresh in the fight against marital destruction and unhappiness. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We are in a series called From This Day Forward, and it's a, it's a series specifically for marriage, but, I, it, but it has application for all relationship. And we called it the big idea from this day forward is, you know, when you go to a, a wedding in the, in the ceremony, the part of the vows is from this day forward. And, and what they mean is like, okay, this was my past, but this is my present and my future. From this day forward, I'm committing to do these, doing these things. And so in our marriages, really in all of our relationships, we want to make four commitments um, to how we do this relationship. And the, and the first one we talked about first week was relinquishing expectations, that we all come into a relationship, especially the marriage relationship. We have these desires, we have these hopes, we have these dreams. And somewhere along the way, these hopes, desires, dreams, they come expectations. So when we were engaged, you know, we dreamed and anything was possible. But now that you're my husband, I expect. Now that you are my wife, I expect. And when you get into that kind of relationship, it becomes like this debtor-debtor relationship where the best you can do is meet the expectation. You can never, and so it becomes really impossible for you ever to uh, receive love or give love because it's all about meeting an expectation. And then, and then, in order to be the kind that those kind of spouses, we talked about last week about another commitment, which is to seek God. That the thing that we're going to do first before we seek each other, we're going to seek. God. And so if you're dating, we're, we talked about how we, we love to change your vernacular from like, I'm, while, while I'm waiting for my two, I'm seeking my one, which is God. There's no one else who could be your one. There's no other one. The, the one that you're looking for is, is God. And the best that any human being can be is your two. So we're going to seek God. It's the best way uh, that we can be. It's the only way that we can be the spouse that God's called us to be. And it's the best way to attract the kind of spouse that you'd want if you're looking to be married. And then also we, in that, we pointed out that Uh, that really, in the end, marriage is just a vehicle, it's not a destination. It's pointing to a much, 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 much infinitely better relationship with Christ and the church. And so we shouldn't make so much of this that we lose uh, sight. And before I get into our third commitment, I just have to do a little bit of housekeeping. Because last week, um, I said a few things about the nature of the relationship between my wife and myself, some things that we lie. You know, we had a good time. And so my wife was, was, was in the nursery serving the kids. And, and after that message, people came up to her and asked, you know, you know, were kind of saying, repeating back basically some things that I said. And she was like, oh, he said that, did he? And, uh, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting that Brian said that. And, and one thing in particular was had to do with it, with pillows, and so it was is about it was about something that 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 the way I described what I like in pillows and what she is, and I and I probably made too much about the differences, you know, I probably made too much about that, and so she decided to do something, and so what she decided to do is unbeknownst to me, is she decided to take a picture of me while I'm sleeping, and so for the sake of my marriage, I have to show you this picture, and so this is not a set. So what she wants for everyone to know, she's like, Brian, I can put this on Instagram or you can do it on Sunday, is I, what I want everyone to know is I want everyone to notice all the pillows that are around Brian, that he doesn't just like one, that he likes multiple pillows. So there you go. I've done my due diligence. She is a sneaky, sneaky lady. 
Now, it is not a coincidence that the third commitment we are going to make in our marriages is we are going to fight fair. And, um, and, it's, and especially for my sake, we are going to fight fair. Good marriages, good marriages and good relationships are not those that avoid conflict, they resolve conflict. Good marriages, good relationships are not those that avoid conflict, because that's impossible. They resolve conflict by, not by fighting each other, not by destroying each other, but by destroying the sin that really is in our own life. Every day, you and I wake up to a battle, and that battle that we have is not against flesh and blood. If you're a Christian here, you know that we have this battle daily that's not against flesh and blood. It's not your spouse. It's not your neighbor. It's not the person who cut you off in traffic. It's not your um, boss. It's not your mother-in-law. It's not the friend who betrayed you. Your battle is against principalities and powers and against your own sinful flesh. That is your battle every single day. Um, and so we said this last week that, uh, that marriage in any relationship, marriage does not cause unhappiness and anger. It exposes it. It doesn't cause it. It exposes it. So which means if you ever catch yourself saying something like, you know, they make me so angry, or I don't like myself when I'm around that person, um, I have some news for you. That, that person did not cause you to be angry. They just exposed the anger that was already in you. And God's grace to you, isn't this good news? God's grace to you is that relationship. You see, because God in our relationship, especially in our marriages, God's goal for us is not our happiness, first and foremost. God's goal for us is our holiness, he wants us to be happy, but that's not the chief desire he has. He's, he's wanting to work some things out in our life, and he has this plan. He has this plan, according to Romans 8, to conform us into the image of his son. He says, I have just the person to bring out the sin that's in their life, and it's the lovely bride that he is going to marry. It is the handsome groom that she wants to marry. He, they think they're finding the person of their dreams to make them happy. I'm bringing them the person of their dreams to make them holy. And what causes the pain and the conflict and the unresolved conflict is not something that they are doing. It's something that's actually inside of us. And so they didn't cause me to be angry. They didn't cause me to be enraged. They just exposed the rage and the anger and the bitterness and the sin that's already in my life. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about how we resolve conflict in a way that seeks to destroy the sin that's the problem and not each other. So why don't you get out your Bibles, uh, uh, turn them on, and uh, go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Or you can use, there's a could be a Bible underneath the chair, in front of you, behind you. Look at a friend, friend's Bible. Um, while I'm doing this, I just want to say something in case I forget to say it. Uh, the, 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 by and large, what I'm talking about today, the conflict I'm talking about today, really the fighting I'm talking about today is, is fighting of, of emotion and words and, and, and conflict that's very, very serious. In fact, it may be cause you to be tempted to, to leave that relationship or maybe you have left that relationship. But one thing I'm not going to be focusing on today is when, uh, when a relationship becomes physically abusive. And I just want to say something a little bit about that because it, uh, it, I'm just talking about guard variety conflict. There are, and sadly it happens more than it should, that there's, there, in relationship there's physical abuse. And it's not just something that breaks God's heart, which it does. It breaks the actual 
law, and uh, if you are someone who is physically abusing someone else, here's my encouragement to you. I want you, I want to invite you to come talk to the elders, and we are not going to judge you, but we do want to help you. Um, the other thing I want to encourage, if you are in a relationship that's physically abusive and you are the one being abused, I want to implore you to please come talk to us as well and maybe even call the police if you're in that situation. Um, so this is, what, I, what I'm talking about today is not, uh, the, which, um, is not the relationships that get into physical fighting and abuse um, and so I'm not going to be addressing that today per se. So when I, when I talk about things and you are in a relationship that's physically abusive, I just want you to know that I'm not necessarily talking to you. And I, I want to encourage you as soon as this message is over today to please, please talk to someone. If, whether you're the one doing the abuse or you're the one being abused, that's something that needs to change today. And, uh, and by, I think by God's grace and the relationships that you have here, uh, we, we want to help you with that regardless of what side you're on. But I do want to speak to us of those. The, the main thing I'm going to be saying today has to do with just kind of the garden variety conflict that we experience in all relationships that does become very, very serious, but I'm not talking about physical conflict. So with that said, we are in Philippians 2, 3. This is what Paul says. This is how we do relationships. This is how we fight the sin that's in us and not fight and destroy the other person. Is We do nothing. Nothing is a pretty all-inclusive word. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This, this word selfish ambition has to do with competition. It means that we don't compete with each other. So if she's telling a story and she gets the details wrong, we don't interrupt her. Hey, that was three months, not four. It was blue, not red. Just let her tell the story wrong. Don't interrupt her. Don't compete with her. Some things are just better left unsaid. And so when you're, when you're in this situation, you got to ask yourself, is this really worth saying? And is it really worth saying now? Proverbs 21, 23, here's some good wisdom for you. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut. Thus saith the Lord. And, <laughs> and you will stay out of trouble. I mean, one of the first things you can do to, to like avoid, you know, resolve conflict is, is to not to get it into the argument. Some arguments are just not worth fighting. It's not worth it. Or as a great theologian, Kenny Rogers said, he said it this way, you got to know when to hold them, you got to know when to fold them, you got to know when to walk away, and you got to know when to run. Some things you just got to have to know that you, how to handle these certain situations. Guard your words. Address the issue. There's a fire going in conflict. Don't add logs to the fire. Don't add logs to the fire. Proverbs uh, 19, 11. I'm going to be throwing a lot of verses at you, by the way, today. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Good sense, wisdom, prudence. And it is glory to overlook an offense. I don't know how many of you play tennis, but when you play tennis, there's this, there's this part in playing, before you get into the actual competition, you're just kind of hitting the ball to each other. You ever play tennis and you just kind of hit the ball? Just kind of a light little, no one's really doing it. They're just kind of like barely hitting the ball to each other. And after 18 years of marriage, I mean, most of our conversations are like, you know, you're kind of talking about certain issues, you know, like, you know, what do we do with the kids? And what about our finances? And what about this? And what about that? And you're just kind of like lovingly, like, you know, it's kind of like knocking the ball to each other when you're doing that in tennis. Well, every once in a while, something, you know, there's a part, the other person like gets it, you know, they kind of pull a mustard on one. You've been in that? Like if you, and, or the little English, and the, and the ball just kind of fires at you. And, and the best thing you can do in that situation is just let the ball go past you, go over, pick up the ball, and say, hey, you know what? We're just going to start this over again. Now, now, what you could be tempted to do is when they hit that, you're like, well, they're going to hit it hard at me. I'm going to hit it hard back at them. And then you just go, and then all of a sudden, you're like three feet, each other, uh, three feet apart from each other at the, you know, just like going hitting the ball back, back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And what this verse is saying is like, it, it's to your credit 
to overlook an offense. Don't just, just don't, don't take their, you know, they, they kind of took the temperature of the room up a degree. Don't you take it up a degree and then up a degree and up a degree. We just kind of, now you're firing at each other. It's to your glory to overlook. Oh, you know, I'm just going to let that one go. I'm going to let the insult go. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to stoop to, I'm just going to let it go. Um, you know, I remember, um, I, gosh, I guess we been married about two years. We were uh, putting up a, um, a, um, a light fixture together. It was in, it was, it was the first house we bought and we were moving it from, it was, it was already, there was already like a perfectly good light fixture, like on the wall, screwed in, worked everything. But there was another light fixture in another room, and she thought it would be better to take this one and put it here and take the other one and put it there. Like, how hard could that be? Except that I, I did not want to do this. So I'm coming into us doing this together. Like, I mean, there wasn't much room in that. I mean, I was, it was up to here already. And so we're, we're, we're changing out this light fixture, and it's a very, it's made out of brass, something like that. And she, like, I say, hold this, and she, and she doesn't hold this, and it, and it drops. And I, I call her name. And it, it's a name I'm embarrassed. I, I don't even want to tell you. It's, it's embarrassing. Now, now, thankfully, thankfully, she called me a name back. And uh, because if she hadn't called me a name back, because you just wonder, like, what's going to happen to me? Like, you know, is this the end? Should I... You know, what, what, what is she going to do? Thankfully, she called me a name too. So she got in the mud with me. So we're, so like we had this, you know, but there's just like, there's in that moment, I need to, this is what the Proverbs says in uh, 12, 16, so it's, a, it's something similar. The vexation of a fool is known at once, meaning like I, my foolishness was exposed very quickly, but the prudent ignores an assault. It just, you know, lets it go, lets it go. It's, it's a good thing to let it go. So there's a few things, there's a few rules I want to encourage you that we've kind of adopted that I want to encourage you, if you're a note taker, uh, please write this down. Never, never call each other names. Just leave name calling out of it. And, I, and I'll explain a little bit more why that's important here in a minute. Um, never raise your voice. Never raise your voice. Never bring up the past. You know, when you have these conversations, some, uh, some people get hysterical in arguments, and some people get historical. And one's crazy and one's destructive. And so just, like, don't do either one of those, but really don't bring up the past. Here's another one. Never, ever say never and ever. Never, ever say never and ever. Because it's just, it's just again, again it, it's, it's naming language. It's like, you never do this, and you always do that. And I know that's the way you feel, but what it does, it just binds people up, and, and it becomes very personal, becomes a selfish and Ambition. Here's the lie. If you haven't taken notes yet, I need you to write this down. Please get a pen. Please write that. This is the most important thing that you need to do going forward. Is the most important thing you do when you're in an argument is never quote me. Never say, well, Brian said to do that. You leave me out of it. You got yourself in this argument. You don't say, you don't bring me, don't drag me into your argument. Just leave me out of it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, which means we fight for resolution, not for victory. We fight the problem, not each other. We don't get into, again, name-calling, raising the temperature, uh, and you got to understand the difference between condemning language and, and bringing a complaint. So bringing a complaint is a part of a relationship. It's a part of letting people know um, how you can best have this relationship. There's a conflict. So it's like, hey, you told me you were going to fill the gas 
or excuse me, fill the car with gas, and, there's, and the, it's empty. I'm frustrated by this. That is a complaint. That is a perfectly normal thing to happen in any relationship. What you can't do is you can't go global with it. You can't condemn. You never remember anything. I can't count on you for anything. You don't do that. You don't try to win. Uh, you don't try to fight the person. You don't try to condemn the person, but you address the problem. This is, this is why Proverbs 12, 18 says it this way. So there, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. And that's what those things are. I can't count on you for anything. You're just wounding each other. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. There is a way to have a helpful resolution to issues. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, this is a key uh, as we move on in verse 3. But in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourself. It's not saying that other people are more significant than you, but count others as more significant. Act like he is more important. Act like she is more important. Have you ever been around someone where you've counted them as more important than you? If you can't think of anything, I'll remind you of when you treated someone as more important than you. You were at a wedding, and the bride walked in. Everyone stood and, like, looked at her. When you walked in, no one noticed you. Afterwards, the bride and the groom are standing there, and there's a line that takes 30 minutes to say like 30 seconds to them. Nobody stood in line for you, but you stood in line for them. You counted her as more important than you. Just do that with other people. Count them as more significant as them. You, that's how you started the relationship. In the very beginning of your dating relationship, it was very fragile. I mean, you did all kinds of things. You know, you defer to them. Um, you know, you didn't correct them. You didn't interrupt them. Uh, you, you know, you laughed even if the joke wasn't funny. I mean, you just did all kinds of things. It says you need to treat people like that. Paul says we treat other people, especially your spouse, in every moment, in every situation, as they are more important than you. Now, wait a minute, Brian, if I do that, they might take advantage of me. Well, yeah, they might. They might take advantage of me. Well, if I do that, I won't get my way. Well, you may not get your way. Think about how you treat your most valuable possession, how you seek to maintain it, how you care for it, some expensive vase, your car. You know, don't do that. Don't touch this. You're just very, very, very careful. A sense of awe, a sense of like, ooh, this is very, very precious and delicate. Treat people, count others as more significant as you. That's how you fight fair. And then humility will cause you to treat other people more significant than you, which means also that when you are in conflict, you're not first looking at what they've done wrong. You're not looking first at the wrong in them. You're first looking at the wrong in you. I mean, that's what James, James says it this way. He says this. He says, what causes the quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Isn't it that you have some desire in you that you're trying to get fulfilled, your desire, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, not physical murder, but murderous thoughts. You know, Jesus said, you know, if, if you have hate in your heart, that's like murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. According to James, the reason I fight is that I'm not getting what I want. I have this need for something and I'm looking for you to give it to me and you're not giving it to me. I have this need for respect, and you're not respecting me. I have this need for love, and you're not loving me. It leads me want to have these murderous thoughts. You're keeping me from what I want, so I despise you. Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4, great chapter on relationships. He talks about it. It's, 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 it's uh, malice and bitterness and wrath and anger and clam, clamor. And, and Paul is saying, or excuse me, James here is saying that these desires are controlling you. 
You have these desires for love and it's controlling you. You have this desire for respect and it's controlling you. So much so that you're willing to yell, you're willing to belittle, you're even willing to abuse or neglect. Let me ask you that question. What is it, what is it that you want so badly that you're willing to yell at somebody for it? That you're willing to neglect them for it? That you're willing to treat them with disdain for it? Maybe even abuse them for it. These desires have become so important to you, they are controlling you. There's something that you are wanting from someone else and they can't or they're not giving it to you, but in reality, it's something that you can only get from God. In my life, I mean, I could see that in my life. There are things that I overwant. Like I have this desire to control my schedule and time. There, I said it. I, I really wanna control my schedule. My, so hey, don't, don't throw me a surprise party, all right? I mean, you don't know what I have to do that day. Like, don't do, I mean, do you hate me? I mean, is that what you, do you really hate me? Are you, we have to leave and you're not ready? Are you serious? Don't you know that I want to control my time and my schedule? I, I have this need and you're not giving me that need, so I despise you. You see, you and I have this thing. It's like a tuning fork inside of us. It's called a sense of justice. Some feel it more, some feel it less, but we all feel it. It's actually something God-given. He wants us, and, and, and that gets intersected at the cross and what he's done for us and wrath and all that. But we have this sense of justice. And the justice that we're the most sensitive to is the injustice toward us. And we have, the, we have, this sen- we have thoughts nigh to God that when someone treats us that we feel is in an unjust manner, that we will turn and we will feel justified in whatever we say and whatever we do. You see, because that sense of justice has to be resolved. That's why when you're watching a movie, they always resolve the conflict. Somebody gets abused. That person has to go to jail. They have to die. They have to suffer. Something bad has to happen to them. There's something inside of us that can't stand that. But they meet together in God. God is a God of justice. God is a God... He's both a God of love and a God of justice. And he says, you need to reserve vengeance for me. You need to leave space for me. I will. There's something that you need from me that you're not getting and you're expecting it to get from the other person. And so you feel like something unjust is doing to you and so you go off. And he says, the real reason why you don't have what you need that you expect from the other person is because you're not asking me. He says, you have, you have not because you ask not. So you have this desire that he's not even saying is a bad desire, but this desire is beginning to control you. And that's why you get angry at other people and maybe even your spouse. It's this idolatrous, it's an over-desire for this. It's a desire that can only be filled in God. And that's what he says. The reason why you're not getting this is because you're not going to. So James is not leaving us without, uh, without um, a, a plan to get that resolved. He says, if you would ask God, he would give it to you. So when, when, when your spouse or someone causes something inside of you to have this feeling of neglect and pain and suffering and anger, it's not an opportunity to lash out for them. It's actually an opportunity to pray and say, God, I have something inside of me that I have this deep need and I'm actually, I need to repent because I'm expecting this other person to fill it, but I know that they can't fulfill it even though I'm expecting them to fulfill it and I need to be looking to you for this. James says, you have not because you asked not. So this anger inside of us is an opportunity to say, I've got to get rid of this idol. I've got to get rid of this pain. and ain't, like, ugh, it's, it's not the other person. 
It's actually me. It's, it's desire within me. That's where the rage is coming from. And I need to ask God. If I can go to God, he's, he's going to give it to me. Your anger says 10 times more about you than whatever the other person did. Now, I know that they could have done something wrong. I mean, knowing you guys, they probably did something wrong. But that's not the issue. Not saying that they're right. They could be wrong too. Or they could even be more wrong. Who knows? But what I'm saying is the real thing. The real issue is what's in us. And the humble person, the person who counts the other person more significant than them, is not going to first look to what they're doing wrong. It's going to first look to where we are wrong. And then it says this. It says it in the same way. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Now, here's a, here's a problem that you and I have. I am very interested in, in what I'm interested in. That wasn't really that complicated. I'm going to say it again anyway. I am really interested in what I'm interested in. I'm not quite as interested in what you're interested in. Let me say it again. I'm really good at being interested in what I'm interested in. I'm not very good at being interested in what you're interested in, which means that I have to be very, very proactive and very, very careful to do this well. I have to, um, as James 1.19 says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, which means in order for me to, to fight fair and to resolve conflict is that in this, I, I can't just be like, okay, what are my interests? What, 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 what is my position? You know, how can I get my way across? And so if they take a breath, I've got 10 reasons why they're wrong. And I'm going to be very, very slow to speak. And I'll be very, very quick to hear. You know, Proverbs 18, this, is, this gets me between the eyes. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding. No pleasure in understanding. They're not looking to understand. We're, not look, we're only expressing our own opinion. Only expressing our own opinion. And then Paul goes on in Philippians 2.5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In your relationships, have this mind of Christ. This mind that counts others as more significant. Not saying that they are more significant, just saying count other people as more significant. Humble yourself. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ. And here's the really good news if you're feeling kind of discouraged. Man, I can never be that way. If you're a believer, it says this is yours in Christ Jesus. You have access to this way of thinking. And the only reason why you're not thinking this way is because you're not thinking this way, you're not accessing, you're not coming before him. And then he goes on and explains what this mind is, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Another translation, I love this translation. It says, it says that he never used the fact that he was God to his own advantage. And that's huge. He never, when he, in his earthly ministry, he never used the fact that he was God to his own relationship. Because you and I, we show up and we think that we're at least 50% in this relationship. I'm at least as good as him. I'm at least as good as her. I have certain rights. I'm just in demanding certain things and expecting certain things. Paul's like, hold on a second. Wait a minute. I just, you need to know something. Here's Jesus who was God and not once did he ever push the God button. Not once did he say, you know, whoa, 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 you know, move over. These are my seats. Not once did he say, okay, no, I, I stand in the front of the line. He did the opposite. 
Not once did he leverage himself for his own sake. I'm tempted to do this all the time. You're tempted to do this all the time. Well, you know, I make the money. I should decide where it goes. You know, I've been carrying this baby around for eight months. You know, this is my data. We all, and you may have, we all have these leverage points in relationship that we point to to say why we deserve something or don't, or don't deserve something if it's a negative thing. We put these leverage points on our spouse. We put these leverage points in our relationship. Well, this is who I am. This is what I deserve. This is what I've done. This is what I deserve. Jesus, who was God, never used the fact that he was God to his own advantage. He was better than all y'all, but he never used that fact to his own advantage. (laughs) Paul's like, Jesus was more important. He was a celebrity. He was the rock star. He was the bride every time. He was the war hero. He was the business guru. He was more important because Jesus was and is God, and yet he not once used that for his advantage. So just do that in your relationships. That's the model. But then he says, and he goes on, he says, but this is what he did, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. It wasn't because he wasn't nothing. You know, we're, we're so um, sensitive and, and like nervous to make ourselves nothing because it means that we are nothing. Well, Jesus was everything. But notice he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Another translation says, he, all the respect to his name, all the honor, all the accolades, all the love, all the things that he had coming to him, he emptied himself of all of that. You know, we see in our culture that he's full of himself. She's full of him, herself. Jesus emptied himself. That's the model. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and he didn't have to do any of that. What was he up to? What was his angle? Why was he doing that? Wouldn't you find that strange? I mean, if you're God, then why are you acting this way? I mean, you, you, should, be like, I mean, you should be in the front of the line. You shouldn't let people talk to you that way. Don't you know who you are? I mean, this is, this is every dignitary, every, any important person that you could ever, and times a million. Why are you acting this way, Jesus. Why are, you, why are you lowering yourself? Why are you emptying yourself? It says that he humbled himself. No one humbled him. No one said, hey, Jesus, you think you're all that, but let me point a few things out to you. Let me humble you. No one humbled him. No one could do that. Pilate tried. He couldn't find fault in him. Jesus humbled himself. He subordinated himself. He placed himself under. He ignored his rights. So he humbled himself Guess who he humbled himself to? He humbled himself to you and to me. Not because we made the first move. He humbled himself by what? What did he do? What, you know, what was, did, you know, did he come home early for dinner? Is that what he did? No, it was bigger than that. Did he, did he finally like, keep the budget? No, it was bigger than that. Did he not interrupt when you were talking? No, it was bigger than that. What did he do? Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And let me try if I can explain this to you, because there's a sense to which Jesus had a dilemma, if you can call it that. He had a choice to make. He can either, he can either maintain my right, I can maintain my rights at getting the respect due me, getting the love due me, getting the honor due me. 
I can, I can maintain my rights or I can have relationship with mankind. I, I can lay down my rights. I can humble myself. I can dip into their world to make relationship possible. I can have everything do me or I can have nothing to do with them or I can become one of them. I can submit myself to people who are far, far inferior, the creator submitting himself to the created in order to make it possible to have relationship with them, but I can't have it both ways. I can hold on to myself or I can have relationship with them. I can hold on to myself or I can have relationship with him. Jesus went to the cross. He put your needs above his rights. He submitted himself to us, not because he had to, he was self-sufficient in himself. He was in the Godhead. There was nothing inside of him that should have been out of him. There was nothing out of him that should have been in him. We were not even close to being equals to him. How much more should we be this way with our spouse or any other relationship we're in? You see, we have the same decision. We can maintain our rights we can hold on to the honor, the love, the respect that's due us. We can, we, I deserve, you can hold on to that or you can have a relationship. How do we do this? Well, we do what Jesus said. We, we lay down ourselves. This is really hard for us, especially when we think that we're 100% right and they're 100% wrong. Jesus was 100% right and we were 100% wrong, but he laid down himself for us. In order to have the strength to do this, we, we have to look to Jesus. We have to do what we talked about last week. We have to put God first. Uh, there's this thing in culture that says, like, you cannot really love other people until, you're first being, until you first love yourself. So you have to be, the idea is you have to be receiving love to give love. And they're half right, right? <laughs> you cannot give something away that you don't have. But where they're wrong is that you have to love yourself for. I mean, Jesus never encouraged us to love yourself. In fact, he said the opposite. You're doing a very good job at loving yourself. Um, you know, just love other people the way you're loving yourself. But what he's saying, he, we have to do what we talked about last week, is that we have to first love him. We have to first tap into a love source that's bigger than us, that's bigger than any human being in order for us to effectively love other people. Uh, it's what... Uh, Tim Keller, this pastor in New York, calls love philanthropy. You see, when you do money philanthropy, it means that you're getting an excess of money from some other source, and you're able to go to people who don't have money, and you're able to give them money without anything in return. You're able to do philanthropy, and they can't do anything in return. In the same way that when we, when we tap into the love source that is God, God is love. God doesn't just do loving things. He is the pool from which love comes from. He is an infinite source of love. When we tap into that, we, when we get an excess love from God, we're able to go to people who aren't able to love us back and we're able to do love philanthropy with them because we have love and we have love to spare. And that's what God wants to do in your life and in all your relationships. You see, in our relationships and our marriage, it's like an engine, a car engine, a car engine, for it to work effectively, it needs a buffer, it needs oil. If you don't put oil in your engine, you'll find out the hard way that it doesn't work very well. It's only a matter of time before that engine breaks down. Oil is that buffer. Oil keeps it there. And, and, and if you're married, I don't know if you notice this, but there are times, uh, maybe just for like moments and seconds, where one person is not loving the other person equally as the other person is loving them. If you, I don't know if you've ever noticed that in marriage, but it's not always, it's not always this perfect match. 
There are times where the spouse is expressing more love than the other spouse. What makes up that gap? You got to have a buffer. You got to have, and you got to be getting love from an excess source so that you can do love philanthropy with your spouse or with anyone that you love dearly or that relationship's going to break down. You need to have love and love to spare. And you can have that in Christ. You can have that in Christ. So here's what I do. Go on, we stand.